Section eight of a romance of two worlds by Marie Corelli. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter six, part one The Hotel Mars and its owner. It was between three and four o'clock in the afternoon of the day succeeding the night of my arrival in Paris when I found myself standing at the door of the Hotel Mars, Champs Elysees. I had proved the pension kept by Madame Denise to be everything that could be desired and on my presentation of Raffaello Cellini's card of introduction, I had been welcomed by the maîtresse de la maison with a cordial effusiveness that amounted almost to enthusiasm. "'C'est cher Cellini!' the cheery and pleasant little woman had exclaimed, as she set before me a deliciously prepared breakfast. "'Je l'aime tant. Il a si bon cœur. Et c'est beau yeux. Mon Dieu! Comme un ange!' As soon as I had settled the various little details respecting my room and attendance, and had changed my travelling dress for a quiet little toilette, I started for the abode of Heliobus. The weather was very cold. I had left the summer behind me at Cannes, to find the winter reigning supreme in Paris. A bitter east wind blew, and a few flakes of snow fell now and then from the frowning sky. The house to which I betook myself was situated at a commanding corner of a road facing the Champs-Élysées. It was a noble-looking building. The broad steps leading to the entrance were guarded on either side by a sculptured sphinx, each of whom held, in its massive stone paws, a plain shield inscribed with the old Roman greeting to strangers, Salve. Over the portico was designed a scroll which bore the name Hotel Mars in clearly cut capitals, and the monogram C.H. I ascended the steps with some hesitation, and twice I extended my hand towards the bell, desiring, yet fearing, to awaken its summons. I noticed it was an electric bell, not needing to be pulled but pressed, and at last, after many doubts and anxious suppositions, I very gently laid my fingers on the little button which formed its handle. Scarcely had I done this than the great door slid open rapidly without the least noise. I looked for the servant in attendance. There was none. I paused an instant. The door remained invitingly open, and through it I caught a glimpse of flowers. Resolving to be bold and to hesitate no longer, I entered. As I crossed the threshold, the door closed behind me instantly, with its previous swiftness and silence. I found myself in a spacious hall, light and lofty, surrounded with fluted pillars of white marble. In the centre a fountain bubbled melodiously, and tossed up every now and then a high jet of sparkling spray, while round its basin grew the rarest ferns and exotics, which emitted a subtle and delicate perfume. No cold air penetrated here. It was as warm and balmy as a spring day in southern Italy. Light Indian bamboo chairs, provided with luxurious velvet cushions, were placed in various corners between the marble columns. And on one of these I seated myself to rest a minute, wondering what I should do next, and whether any one would come to ask me the cause of my intrusion. My meditations were soon put to flight by the appearance of a young lad, who crossed the hall from the left-hand side and approached me. He was a handsome boy of twelve or thirteen years of age, and he was attired in a simple Greek costume of white linen, relieved with a broad crimson silk sash. A small flat crimson cap rested on his thick black curls. 
This he lifted with deferential grace, and saluting me, said respectfully, "'My master is ready to receive you, mademoiselle.' I rose without a word and followed him, scarcely permitting myself to speculate as to how his master knew I was there at all. The hall was soon traversed, and the lad paused before a magnificent curtain of deep crimson velvet, heavily bordered with gold. Pulling a twisted cord that hung beside it, the heavy, regal folds parted in twain with noiseless regularity, and displayed an octagon room so exquisitely designed and ornamented that I gazed upon it as upon some rare and beautiful picture. It was unoccupied in my young escort, placed a chair for me near the central window, informing me, as he did so, that Monsieur le Comte would be with me instantly, whereupon he departed. Left alone I gazed in bewilderment at the loveliness round me. The walls and ceiling were painted in fresco. I could not make out the subjects, but I could see faces of surpassing beauty smiling from clouds and peering between stars and crescents. The furniture appeared to be of very ancient Arabian design. Each chair was a perfect masterpiece of wood-carving, picked out and inlaid with gold. The sight of a semi-grand piano, which stood open, brought me back to the realization that I was living in modern times, and not in a dream of the Arabian Nights. While the Paris Figaro and the London Times, both of that day's issue, lying on a side-table, demonstrated the nineteenth century to me with every possible clearness. There were flowers everywhere in this apartment, in graceful vases, and in gilded osier baskets, and a queer lopsided oriental jar stood quite near me, filled almost to overflowing with Neapolitan violets. Yet it was winter in Paris, and flowers were rare and costly. Looking about me I perceived an excellent cabinet photograph of Raffaello Cellini, framed in antique silver, and I rose to examine it more closely, as being the face of a friend. While I looked at it, I heard the sound of an organ in the distance, playing softly an old familiar church chant. I listened. Suddenly I bethought myself of the three dreams that had visited me, and a kind of nervous dread came upon me. This Heliobus, was I right after all in coming to consult him? Was he not perhaps a mere charlatan? It might not his experiments upon me prove fruitless, and possibly fatal. An idea seized me that I would escape while there was yet time. Yes, I would not see him to-day at any rate. I would write and explain. These and other disjointed thoughts crossed my mind, in yielding to the unreasoning impulse of fear that possessed me. I actually turned to leave the room, when I saw the crimson velvet portier dividing again its regular and graceful folds, and Heliobus himself entered. I stood mute and motionless. I knew him well. He was the very man I had seen in my third and last dream. The same noble, calm features, the same commanding presence, the same keen, clear eyes, the same compelling smile. There was nothing extraordinary about his appearance, except his stately bearing and handsome countenance. His dress was that of any well-to-do gentleman of the present day, and there was no affectation of mystery in his manner. He advanced and bowed courteously, then with a friendly look held out his hand. I gave him mine at once. "'So you are the young musician,' 
he said in those warm, mellifluous accents that I had heard before, and that I so well remembered. "'My friend Raffaello Cellini has written to me about you. I hear you have been suffering from physical depression.' He spoke as any physician might do who inquired after a patient's health. I was surprised and relieved. I had prepared myself for something darkly mystical, almost cabalistic, but there was nothing unusual in the demeanour of this pleasant and good-looking gentleman, who, bidding me be seated, took a chair himself opposite to me, and observed me with that sympathetic and kindly interest which any well-bred doctor would esteem it his duty to exhibit. I became quite at ease, and answered all his questions fully and frankly. He felt my pulse in the customary way, and studied my face attentively. I described all my symptoms, and he listened with the utmost patience. When I had concluded, he leaned back in his chair, and appeared to ponder deeply for some moments. Then he spoke. "'You know, of course, that I am not a doctor.' "'I know,' I said. Signor Cellini explained it to me.' "'Ah!' and Heliobas smiled. "'Raffaello explained as much as he might, but not everything. I must tell you I have a simple pharmacopoeia of my own.' It contains twelve remedies, and only twelve. In fact, there are no more that are of any use to the human mechanism. All are made of the juice of plants, and six of them are electric. Raffaello tried you with one of them, did he not? As he put this question, I was aware of a keenly inquiring look sent from the eyes of my interrogator into mine. Yes, I answered frankly, and it made me dream, and I dreamt of you. Heliobus laughed lightly. "'So that is well. Now I am going, in the first place, to give you what I am sure will be satisfactory information. If you agree to trust yourself to my care, you will be in perfect health in a little less than a fortnight. But you must follow my rules exactly.' I started from my seat. "'Of course!' I exclaimed eagerly, forgetting all my previous fear of him. I will do all you advise, even if you wish to magnetize me as you magnetized Signor Cellini. I never magnetized, Raffaello, he said gravely. He was on the verge of madness, and he had no faith whereby to save himself. I simply set him free for a time, knowing that his was a genius which would find things for itself, or perish in the effort. I let him go on a voyage of discovery, and he came back perfectly satisfied. That is all. You do not need his experience. How do you know? I asked. You are a woman. Your desire is to be well and strong, health being beauty, to love and to be beloved, to wear pretty toilettes and to be admired, and you have a creed which satisfies you and which you believe in without proofs. There was the slightest possible tinge of mockery in his voice as he said these words. A tumultuous rush of feelings overcame me. My high dreams of ambition, my innate scorn of the trite and commonplace, my deep love of art, my desires of fame, all these things bore down upon my heart and overcame it, and a pride too deep for tears arose in me and found utterance. "'You think I am so slight and weak a thing?' I exclaimed, you who profess to understand the secrets of electricity, you have no better instinctive knowledge of me than that. Do you deem women all alike, all on one common level, fit for nothing but to be the toys or drudges of men? 
Can you not realize that there are some among them who despise the inanities of everyday life, who care nothing for the routine of society, and whose hearts are filled with cravings that no mere human love or life can satisfy? Yes, even weak women are capable of greatness, and if we do sometimes dream of what we cannot accomplish through lack of the physical force necessary for large achievements, that is not our fault, but our misfortune. We did not create ourselves. We did not ask to be born with the oversensitiveness, the fatal delicacy, the highly strung nervousness of the feminine nature. Monsieur Heliobus, you are a learned and far-seeing man, I have no doubt. But you do not read me aright if you judge me as a mere woman who is perfectly contented with the petty commonplaces of ordinary living. And as for my creed, what is it to you whether I kneel in the silence of my own room or in the glory of a lighted cathedral to pour out my very soul to one whom I know exists and whom I am satisfied to believe in, as you say, without proofs, save such proofs as I obtain from my own inner consciousness? I tell you, though, in your opinion it is evident my sex is against me. I would rather die than sink into the miserable, non-entity of such lives as are lived by the majority of women. I paused, overcome by my own feelings. Heliobus smiled. So you are stung, he said quietly, stung into action. That is as it should be. Resume your seat, mademoiselle, and do not be angry with me. I am studying you for your own good. In the meantime, permit me to analyze your words a little. You are young and inexperienced. You speak of the oversensitiveness, the fatal delicacy, the highly strung nervousness of the feminine nature. My dear lady, if you had lived as long as I have, you would know that these are mere stock phrases, for the most part meaningless. As a rule, women are less sensitive than men. There are many of your sex who are nothing but lumps of lymph and fatty matter, women with less instinct than the dumb beasts, and with more brutality. There are others who, adding the low cunning of the monkey to the vanity of the peacock, seek no other object but the furtherance of their own designs, which are always petty even when not absolutely mean. There are obese women whose existence is a doze between dinner and tea, there are women with thin lips and pointed noses, who only live to squabble over domestic grievances and interfere in their neighbors' business. There are your murderous women with large almond eyes, fair white hands, and voluptuous red lips, who, deprived of the dagger or the poison bowl, will slay a reputation in a few lazily enunciated words, delivered with a perfectly high-bred accent. There are the miserly women, who look upon cheese parings and candle-ends and lock up the soap. There are the spiteful women, whose very breath is acidity and venom. There are the frivolous women, whose chitter-chatter and senseless giggle are as empty as the rattling of dry peas on a drum. In fact, the delicacy of women is extremely overrated. Their coarseness is never done full justice to. I have heard them recite in public selections of a kind that no man would dare to undertake, such as Tennyson's Rizpah, for instance. I know a woman who utters every line of it, with all its questionable allusions, boldly before any and everybody, without so much as an attempt at blushing. I assure you men are far more delicate than women, far more chivalrous, 
far larger in their views and more generous in their sentiments but i will not deny the existence of about four women in every two hundred and fifty who may be and possibly are examples of what the female sex was originally intended to be pure-hearted self-denying gentle and truthful filled with tenderness and inspiration heaven knows my own mother was all this and more and my sister is end of section eight